bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for clearing the way for this beautiful moment in time called today. Thank you for making it possible for each and every one of us to be able to make it here, so that as your word states, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. Thank you, Father, for our health whenever you deem it intrinsically good, and also for those times when it might be the source of pain. For in both cases, all things are working together for good for those who love you. We pray, Father, that our hearts be ever open to the truth and that we remain humble always. We pray also, Father, for those still lost in this world, that they realize the error in their ways and turn to the one source of salvation, you. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title, The Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 107. I'll start this way from this Saturday's blog titled, What Exactly Are We Resting From? Let me read an excerpt from this Saturday's blog titled, What Exactly Are We Resting From? The big question here is, what exactly are we resting from? Is it exhaustion from working so hard at our jobs? That would be acceptable if people weren't actually, quote, storing up treasures for themselves, Luke 12, 21. Are our families pooped out because our kids have joined so many activities and sports teams that nobody has any time for church or the Bible? Are we actually trying to justify such things to ourselves? Are we perpetually drained because we're in the midst of some dysfunctional cycle of, quote, party on the weekends and then grind it out over the weekdays? These are the honest questions we must ask ourselves. Again, that's an excerpt from Saturday's blog titled, What Exactly Are We Resting From? I often wonder with well over 200 people subscribed to the blog nowadays, how such blog entries might affect the souls of the readers. I want to read uh, an email I received this Saturday from an individual in Africa who's often corresponding with me. Very, very grateful individual. Very passionate individual. He's a pastor down there. But he's very grateful for the work that we put out. Greetings, man of God. He's funny because you, you have to know his personality and people don't always speak the same way we do. But anyways. Greetings, man of God. Why do you want to provoke me? to say things I always fear to say with such a lesson. Have you ever asked sickness or enemies to allow you to have some rest? How did it feel like? Nice. 
Do we ever remember to thank him for our health and a good share of our enemies who always keep us in check? Last Friday, somebody slandered me and soiled my name. Do you know what happened? I prayed the whole night. I have occasionally prayed, and the next moment I had peace, joy, and comfort. I think you know how it feels to be in the presence of the Lord. No shame or problem of any magnitude can tear us down. May he bless you above and beyond what you think. In Jesus' name, Pastor Joshua in Africa. And that's a wonderful, though not unique, heartfelt response from this particular individual. And except for a few rare cases, I always receive feedback from several people each week. And it's really good because I believe the Spirit motivates these folks to do so as a form of encouragement to the, to the writer. So my gratitude goes out to all of you who take the time to pass your thoughts along to me. I appreciate it, and so does the congregation whenever I read your feedback anonymously. For example, here's something sent to me from someone in the local assembly on the same blog. This blog brought some things to mind. People are never satisfied. I cannot tell you how many people I have chastised for complaining about the stupid weather. Gosh golly, people, we live in the East Coast. Get over it. I have recently described my life as a, quote, working vacation. I am constantly working, but constantly resting. My life is a perfect balance of work and rest in all aspects, and I am so grateful for it. So up here on the board, I wanted to share the final comment from this person. The peace I have found through obedience is overwhelming. The peace I have found through obedience is overwhelming. Truly, this last sentence has been on my mind for a while. I am happy, not always in my emotions, but even when hurting, I am content. I am discovering his joy, and it's truly amazing. You know, it's funny because I could write an entire book on that one highlighted sentence on the board, and I'm being serious. For starters, from experience, I can tell you that the more one teaches obedience, the less interested, in general, the students become. It's a surreal experience to stand behind a pulpit and say a single word and watch how a change in body language and engagement sweeps over the audience. I don't think I can ever fully explain it, but let me tell you this. It's just as real as I am standing here. One word. Whenever I begin to teach vehemently on obedience, people go from praise the Lord to doubt the man in seconds flat. Praise the Lord to doubt the man in seconds flat. In other words, teaching obedience is just about the quickest way to get a person to make an otherwise healthy lesson personal, as if it's between them and me. 
Knowing this and living it, you might imagine the encouragement I do receive whenever I receive correspondence like the one on the board. When I read this, I'm very much encouraged because it's not the majority that shares this with me. The majority is all of you. And whenever the word obedience comes up, everybody goes... And I'm not talking about everybody doing this physically. I can see it in your face. If your face had arms to cross, they would cross. Here we go again. The peace I have found through obedience is overwhelming. I do know who this person is, and I know them well enough to discern that they are what I would call a knocker. That's what this person is. Hey, Jesus, it's me again. Who's a knocker? Might as well define it. It's just another name for a humble person who seeks God's grace aggressively at that. Go to Luke 11.5. Luke 11.5. So the majority of this morning's message, at least the middle part of it, is on this topic of what is a knocker? Who's a knocker anyways? Who's knocking? And why? And what's the benefit? Well, some of you might read the green letters up on the board and say, the peace I have found through obedience is overwhelming, and say, how could that possibly be? Obedience to me has always had this sort of connotation of oppressive Luke 11:5 Then he said to them, "Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, "Friend, lend me 3 loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him." And from inside, that means someone's knocking through a door in other words. That's the visual. From inside he answers and says, "Do not bother me, the door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed." I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask. This is Jesus. Red letters, right? So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. These are activities, my friends. Activities. Not passive thinking, active thinking. Knock, and it will be opened to you. A knocker knocks. That's where they get their name. A persistent individual has aggressive humility. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now, suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish, He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So to answer the previously pondered question, who's a knocker? A person who knocks is a person who is granted grace. Grace. 
That's what you saw on the board. That's the point on the board. That's a grace-oriented individual, a person who is resting because they understand the grace gift of obedience, of obeying God's will. A person who knocks is a person who is granted grace with the caveat, of course, that they are, quote, knocking with the right motivation, a la James 4.3. I believe that people are so confused about the grace of God that they somehow have become completely idle in their spiritual walks. I know a lot of people who could give me a good definition. Oh, it's chorus in the Greek. Good for you. Good for you. You understand the original word. What does it mean? Frank and I were talking about this. And here's a guy with about 45 years of learning the Word of God under his belt. And he said, I'm just realizing now that spiritual maturity is about the simple things. (laughs) That the so-called basics are actually where we find this elusive thing called spiritual maturity. It's incredible, a guy after 40-something years coming to that conclusion. What a wonderful thing to see. I believe that people are so confused about the grace of God that they somehow have become completely idle in their spiritual walks, as if the grace of God makes a person spiritually impotent. I believe that it is by God's grace alone that we are each saved through faith. But I do not believe that we humans have no part in it. For that would be completely disjoint from what Holy Scriptures have to say on the topic. Let's look at a perfect example of this. For I really want you all to understand God's grace, but not some perversion of it. Go to Luke 13.22. Luke 13.22. If God wanted robots, He would have made them. We have a thing called free will, which means we actually have an active part in receiving grace. So here's a perfect example. Luke 13, 22, and he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Up here on the board, the Greek word is agonize. Do you see the word agonize in there? That's because it literally means agonize. The word is taken from the Grecian games. In their races and wrestlings and various athletic exercises, they strove or agonized or put forth all their powers to gain the victory. That's a quote from Barnes, but that's consistent with Strong's and other commentaries. So, again, look at verse 24. 
Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That's the Lord using this language. And he was never wrong in his language. As a pastor who teaches grace as the absolute means of salvation, this verse has always given me a reason to pause. Well, I mean, it did more so up until about a year ago when the good Lord turned the lights on and said, reload my gospel. However, what I've also learned is that I can't impart what he's since given me on the subject directly to you. I know for a fact that some of you have grace twisted in your souls. And it looks good on the outside, but it's actually twisted. It's actually got you in a seat of idleness. A seat where you're crippled. You're made just to be forced to just sort of sit there and not even make decisions. But I've learned that I can't impart what he's since given me on the subject directly to you. You, my friends, must meditate on Jesus' words in your own timing, in the privacy of your own prayer life. If that particular, that's one of many, many, many verses. If that particular verse gives you fits, you have to go to him in prayer and say, what's the deal? I thought I understood grace, but this seems a little bit outside of that, that envelope. But it cannot be, because that's the inspired word of God. Heck, those are the words of our Lord and Savior. And he didn't make a mistake when he said those things. So you have to reconcile these things in your soul. But I can't give them to you. I can only teach what the word of God, I can only drive the bus, I can only say... Chew on that grass for a little while until it makes sense to you. And that's in the privacy of your own prayer life. As Jesus was saying to the person who asked the original question, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? What Jesus was saying to this person is the same thing he said to all of us at some point in our lives. He was saying to this person or these people, first, make sure you are saved. Make sure you understand the gospel and that even it comes at a cost. There's a certain cost. There's a certain striving at hand. So the question is then, for those of you who have grace tangled, is it any less gracious of him by asking that you let go of the self-life? Is it any less gracious of God to ask you to let go of the self-life? Is that supposed to be some infraction on God's grace? You letting go? Because as Scripture clearly explains, it surely isn't. So this quote, counting the cost, is not to say that you have to perform any of the good work of salvation 
in yourself by grace through faith, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We know that we're saved by grace alone, that there's nothing that we do that is able to help God's hand come down in the Supreme Court of Heaven and say, saved. But we must reconcile Scripture to Scripture. And our Lord said, strive. Our Lord said, count the cost. Our Lord said a lot of things. Deny yourself, follow me. Pick up your cross or else you can't be my disciple. The Lord said a lot of things like that. Hmm. So maybe you've got grace a little bit perverted in your soul. Maybe you don't understand grace. Maybe you've taken grace too far. Maybe you think grace means just to be idle and sit on a bench until God literally picks you up and moves you. So this counting the cost is not to say that you have to perform any of the good work of salvation in yourself, but you absolutely must understand that to follow Jesus, you must be willing to give up your life. He was saying that if you don't understand this most fundamental truth about my gospel, then you've missed the whole point. He was saying, and still is, that I am the Savior, and I'm a real person, and I'm asking you to follow me, and you cannot serve two gods. So you must give up the one for the other. That's the cost here. You can't have both. That's the cost. I know people who are so tangled up in a mangled definition of grace that they somehow think that a person's infringing on God's grace by accepting these things as truth, which is, frankly, exceptionally strange, given the pervasiveness of such statements from the Savior himself. <laughs> Again, look at verse 24. Jesus said, Strive. Again, the point of the board. Agonize. Strive. To enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Let me give you a couple of other perspectives on this. And while you're thinking about that, think of the person, maybe you're the person. Think of the person who it took, I don't know, 10 years after they heard the gospel the first time. And the Spirit convicted them of the gospel. And they remained an unbeliever for 10 years. What was going on? A struggle. They knew what was right. The Holy Spirit was saying, you know it's right. But their flesh was saying, but I don't want to give up my self-life. And maybe it took 10 years. What do you think Jesus is saying here? <laughs> Either he honors our free will or he doesn't. Either we come to this game as wretched individuals, like Scripture says, or we didn't. Not everybody believes the gospel the first time they hear it. Let's put it that way. Why not? It's not that the gospel wasn't right. It's because they struggled with it. What else do you want me to say? That's what Scripture says. That's how faith works. You don't get it until you're humble. So if you hear the gospel and you're still arrogant... 
Let me give you a couple of other perspectives on this. First, Kenneth, Kenneth West, who's a uh, Bible commentator, uh, Luke 13, 24, be endeavoring with a strenuous zeal to enter through the narrow door. That's his expanded version of striving. Be endeavoring with a strenuous zeal to enter through the narrow door. The other perspective I want to give you is from J. Vernon McGee. Jesus made it abundantly clear that it would cost to follow him. That we, in our sophisticated and soft affluency, think otherwise is heresy. He is saying to this man, make sure you are saved. We spent the first 20 parts of this series contemplating Jesus' undeniable words regarding his own gospel. And here we are again being reminded of the whole truth of the matter that while salvation is truly by grace through faith, don't you ever accuse this pulpit of ever, ever denouncing anything to do with grace or faith. We have never lost sight of this basic truth that salvation is by grace through faith. These are gifts from God. But Scripture also says, you have to count the cost, and I will give my grace to the humble. So when an arrogant person hears the gospel, and they say, I'm not giving up my self-life, like the rich man, it may take a while. It may never happen. But you know God the Holy Spirit's right there saying, listen, believe this thing. Go off, go. Calculate the cost. Go ponder what it means to to lose your life. Go ponder what it means to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. I want that from you. I wrote a book called The Boat Analogy on that very topic. Each of us must calculate the cost of what it means to follow our Lord, as Jesus said in Luke 14, 28. Again, I just wanted to help you along on what, for some, may pose a bit of a paradox. But what you find out is there's no such thing as a paradox from God's perspective. So if you're having trouble reconciling pairs or multiple verses of Scripture or passages of Scripture. It's not God's problem. It's your problem. That's Him saying, keep knocking then. You want the truth? Keep knocking then. Seek and you will find. But seeking seems like a works program. What would you like me to say to that? That somehow God was remiss by saying that all these things are by grace, but... What? What would you like me to say to that kind of a viewpoint? It's a garbage viewpoint. It's a lazy person's view into grace. It's an arrogance. It's a strain of arrogance that goes very deep in some of you. I'm thinking of Frank right now and the conversation I had with him yesterday. It goes very, very deep in some of you. Some of you don't understand grace fully. You think you do, but your lives even show you that you don't. 
So there's no paradox with God. It's only with you. So keep knocking. I think the people who are most confused are the ones that think they understand grace, but somewhere along the lines it got perverted into something it's not. Simply put, man is called to the carpet to make a decision. And as Scripture says over and over again, Matthew 16, 25, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Refer to, think about counting the cost there. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's an activity there. What would you like me to say? Luke 13, 24. Here's an activity that Jesus said. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. All right, let me ask you a question. You, you, you propose the following to anyone on the street. Hey, let's just pretend for a second that there really is a heaven and hell. We know differently, but you know what I'm getting at. Just accept that basic premise. Which one do you want to go through? You want perfect bliss, or do you want gnashing and weeping and gnashing of teeth forever and ever? Oh, I totally want perfect bliss. How do I get that? Doesn't that sound familiar? How do I get that? Well, you have to lose your life. You have to count the cost. You have to understand, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Nope. Just give me the freebies. I like the grace that says there is no decision. I like the grace that says I can sit here idle. Even as a so-called believer, we don't want to get into that whole thing again, I can sit back, never be changed whatsoever, and still expect to go to heaven. When Jesus Christ said, get away from me, I never knew you. You never even took the time to count the cost. You never even took the time. When you were presented with the gospel, you said, I love the idea of heaven, hate the idea of losing my life. Nope. You cannot throw out Scripture because you don't, what, like it? It doesn't suit you. It doesn't suit your children who are off doing God knows what right now instead of learning the Word of God. You cannot do that thing. or your uncles, or your friends, or whoever, whatever everybody's doing right now that has nothing to do with Christ. Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. It's not a matter of whether you want heaven or not. It's not a matter of whether or not you want to get through it. It's a matter of whether or not you make the decision. Like Jesus said, just between me and you, he says. Look me in the eye. Do you want me as your Lord and Savior or not? But I like the little thing on the coin. I like the thing on the coin. I just wanted to come up, make some weird altar call and say, praise Jesus, I'm saved, and have everybody in the congregation say, oh, you're saved, it's so awesome, let's go party. That's garbage. Let's press on with the instigating principle up here on the board. Again, aggressive humility. A person who knocks is a person who is granted grace. With the caveat, of course, that they are knocking with the right motivation. However, as the Lord spoke in absolute regarding salvation proper, some may knock too late even, so to speak. 
which is how Jesus finishes up this parable. Look at verse 25. So the parable continues. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table of the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. The strict context there, of course, was he was talking about the religious folks of the day. But look at us. We prophesied, we taught, we did all these things. Yeah, but I didn't know you. Because every time you were presented with the real gospel, you rejected it. And here I am standing as the Messiah, your Messiah, the one that was prophesied, and you don't want anything to do with me. And if you don't want anything to do with me, you don't want anything to do with the Father. Because I and the Father are one. (laughs) And just so you know that we aren't the only ones knocking, Jesus Christ asked the Apostle John to share his thoughts with the lukewarm church at Laodicea, where Jesus is revealed as a knocker himself. Go to Revelation 3.14. Revelation 3.14, you know, this is amidst the seven churches. Hey, doesn't it take strength or some kind of something to knock? Wouldn't that be anti-grace then? If you're actually having to knock? There are some people right now, I guarantee it, who are saying... Oh, that's a works program. Then Jesus was a liar, and you're an idiot. And you don't read your Bible. You don't read your Bible then. That's all I can tell you. Because if you read your Bible like the Spirit's been telling you to read your Bible, these things are indisputable truths in the Word of God. For many of you, you're too idiotic and lazy, and you just took someone else's definition of grace and smeared it across everything, and you lost sight of the gospel even. You lost sight of your first love, even. He was whittled down to a statement on a coin. And that's what you presented to people year over year over year because that's what you're told to present to people. And you liked it because it was easy. And you're lazy and arrogant. Join the crowd. Join the crowd. Been there, done that. He's delivering all of us as I speak. Jesus Christ was a knocker as well. Revelation 3.14, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you might clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed in the eyes of to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I, Jesus Christ, is in view. 
I stand at the door and what? Knock. Huh. Imagine that. The humblest of the humble knocks. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Trench on Revelation 3.20, every man up here on the board, every man is lord of the house of his own heart. It is his fortress. He must open the gates of it. He has the mournful prerogative and privilege of refusing to open. But if he refuses, he is blindly at strife with his own blessedness, a miserable conqueror. That makes me think of those who say, I don't want a Lord over my life, therefore I reject the gospel. I just want to go to heaven, because that other place sounds really bad. That's not a hard issue. That's a person hedging their bets. That's an intellectual saying, well, mom and pop says I'm already saved, so I guess that's it. All I have to do is just walk down the aisle thing or say, or just be a member of a church or tell mom and dad that I'm, that, oh yeah, I totally believe in Jesus. You know how many people I've actually queried beyond just that statement? Do you believe Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior? Yeah. Well, what does that mean to you? I have no idea. You just stop probing, they have no idea. Do you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins? I do. You murder someone tomorrow, you go to hell? Yep, I will. Then you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the gospel. You're believing in a perversion. That means you don't understand grace. Hmm. That makes you a miserable conqueror. The reason for this little sidebar on persistence is to encourage all of you to realize that sanctification comes with humility, and humility is aggressive towards grace, persistent even, as Scripture says. So if you're ever feeling like your spiritual life is stunted, please keep knocking and praying, and don't ever quit. Just whatever you do, don't quit. Maybe you're, maybe you're down and out right now. Just don't quit. Everything in this world is designed to make you quit. Every single time, now I had this discussion with the person who wants to become a member, every single time a person begins to move forward, begins to realize how much God truly loves them, begins to want and desire to obey, maybe they don't all the way yet, Fine, none of us do completely. But the desire is there. They've been saved. As soon as that happens, guess what happens? That person becomes the apple of the world's eye. Usually a DJ, if I brought him up here, I would say, and I'm not kidding you, 90% of the time, it's someone from the opposite sex. All of a sudden, I mean, you're the most attractive man or woman on the planet. Don't know how it happened. Because you started believing truth, and all of a sudden, the opposite sex thinks you're the cat's meow. And you like it, and you get carried away. Satan's not stupid. And if it's not the opposite sex, it's work, or it's some other ridiculous, or it's family problems, that's the other one. All of a sudden, your, your niece or your son or your parent blows up. You're just starting to move forward, and all of a sudden, your family unit goes... Where did that come from? What do you think? 
What do you think's going on? Just open your eyes. If you ever feel like your spiritual life is stunted, just keep knocking. Keep praying. Don't ever quit. That's all I can tell you as a shepherd. Just don't quit. With that said, the Spirit's taking us all the way back to our working framework now. All of this, of course, has everything to do with experiential sanctification. In other words, what's he trying to do in your life? I do teach about salvation proper because I want to make sure that you're all saved. But my goal in life, so to speak, in this local assembly is to equip you. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Equip the saints so you can go out and deal with the Great Commission and go do this thing. Experiential sanctification, simply put, his perspective, his gospel, is what becomes our sanctification. Yeah, that's what it means. I don't care if you're a PhD. I don't care if you remember that word for agonize. Who cares? Did Jesus say to the little kid on his knee, Hey, if you don't understand and remember this Greek word right here, or this whatever he's speaking, Aramaic at the time, if you don't understand this word right here, I mean all of it, then get off my knee. <laughs> no. No. He doesn't say that now. But Satan's really smart. Satan says, let's supplant the real gospel with garbage. Let's make it so that it really is human effort. Let's make it so there's a ladder to climb. Let's make it so that if you, understand, you know, if you can regurgitate these prayers or this certain language or this thing and you know, all the right things to say when you know, someone asks you about these things, that'll be salvation. That's what religion does. But the Word of God, if you read it, it's a heart issue. Either you believe in Jesus the person and what He did for you and what His Father sent Him to do, or you don't. You believe He's your Lord and Savior, or you don't. It's a personal issue, folks. It's not a mental assent issue. On Thursday, I read an article titled The Steps of Biblical Sanctification by John MacArthur. I just want to review that quickly. He had three, basically three stages that he outlined. I don't want you to make a doctrine out of it. That would be foolish. But it's nice the way that he sort of outlined it, so I'll repeat it. On cognition... The only certain method for true spiritual growth starts with absorbing God's eternal truth. That's the Word of God. The only certain method for true spiritual growth starts with absorbing God's eternal truth. On conviction, biblical truth is established in your mind through cognition. That same truth guides your life through conviction. And then, of course, on affection... Your affection and hunger for God's truth will be insatiable and nothing will keep you from it. That's what it means, in other words. And it's a nice way to think about what it means to be sanctified. You have to learn it. You have to be convicted by it. And then you have a real affection for it. A real desire for truth. As the Spirit reiterated on Thursday evening when it comes to practical sanctification... We do have a litmus test that we can apply to ourselves up here on the board. 
The very foundation of our spiritual life is progressively grounded in love. Ephesians 3.17, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love. That's how we know. That's the great litmus test, folks. And to net it all out up here on the board, there is no sanctification in the absence of love. Just read uh, 1 Corinthians 13 when you go home. There is no sanctification in the absence of love. Not Fabio love. Not the romance novel love. Not that emotional garbage that is used so often with the 90% of people who start moving forward. None of that garbage. We're talking about the love of God. We love because he first loved us. Most people come to the table with some awful perversion of what love is. Some people go to church to find so-called love. Eee, caramba, not this one. They're like, it's not worth it. This guy's a maniac. It's not worth it. It's really because it's not worth it. That, it's kind of funny you're laughing, but it really isn't. There is no sanctification in the absence of love. This is not to say that love is the same for everyone. How could it be? Now, this is where the Spirit said, let's, let's get really practical about this. Let's just talk. And I, Pastor Ed and you, I'm a vessel. He's talking to you. He and you, says the Spirit. Let's talk about this. This is not to say that love is the same for everyone. How could it be? I'm not trying to stand here and, and, and uh, browbeat you or you know, take a ball-peen hammer and hammer you into the love that I have with my Lord and Savior. That's not my job. My job is to lead you to Scripture. But what I do see in Scripture is that love is not the same for everyone. Why? I mean, doesn't it make total sense? How could it be? We all live different lives. I mean, think of Frank. Is anybody going to say that they have the exact same love for the Lord as Frank does right now? No. How could you? You're not in a hospital bed for the last three months. And by the way, his legs are about the size of my forearm. The top, even. Well, I have giant forearms, so... Just kidding. Jeez, people, loosen up. Jeez. I know it's not true, all right? Just go with it. Jeez. People are like, no, you, you, no, dude. Get Anthony up there or something. Then it'll be real. He, he's barely moving his legs. Right? That's a real thing for a Marine who likes to get up and go. Anybody of you, any one of you want to say that you understand that? No. How about some of you that have um, chemical things going on in your body that no one else can see that wreaks havoc in your life and you struggle with it? Am I going to sit here and go, oh, I totally understand. You just, you just don't get it. If your love doesn't look like my love, you're just remiss. I'm not going to stand in and say that. I don't understand that love that you have. How do I know what that struggle looks like? That's your cross to bear. The Bible is very personal on these things, and God created you. With all the imbalances, with all the, don't be offended, the craziness, or all the physical ailments, or whatever, you, however you'd like to look at the challenges in your life, Listen, when God delivers you from those things, you have a certain kind of love and appreciation for God. 
for doing so. Amen? Amen. So I'm not going to stand here and tell you what your sanctification is going to look like. I can only teach the Word of God. So with that said, I can teach you this way. I can help you with little parables and such to help you along. Your sanctification. Two flower gardens may have the same count and type of flowers, but they are never the same. Soil, sun, atmosphere, whatever. No two believers, though equally magnificent in their sanctification, are ever identical by grace through faith. So, embrace your sanctification and love it. Embrace your sanctification. And might I add, throw out all the undermining chatter from the world on the subject of you. Throw it out. The world's constantly trying to tell you, you don't measure up. Hey, you girl, why don't you have pumps like that girl? Why don't you have uh, a hair like that one? Why aren't you, you know, why aren't you this big? And why aren't you airbrushed? And why aren't you whatever? Why don't you ever measure up, girl? Mm-mm. Mr., why, what's wrong with you? Why do you got legs like Pastor Ed's forearms? What's wrong with you? God must not love you. No, just the opposite. God adores you. He loves you. You're his child. You think he's doing these things to hurt you for the sake of hurting you? For the sake of him being cruel? No. How the heck do I know? I'm just saying this. Frank's going to be watching this going, hey, hey, easy. Frank could be an arrogant son of a gun. I tell him that, too. I'm like, Frank, you must be arrogant. Right? And he laughs because he gets it. But whatever has befallen you in terms of trials, if it truly is from God, then it must be good for you. Hard to understand sometimes, yeah. But certainly good for you. But you see, the the world's going to try to analyze you and tell you what the real problem is. You know, like Job's friends? You must be suffering, you must be evil. You're suffering, therefore you are. No, no. Not at all. So stop listening to the world Throw out all the undermining chatter from the world on the subject of you. This is a major part of the good work that the Spirit's been doing in each of you through this pulpit even. Go to Ephesians 4.11. Ephesians 4.11. Kind of got to get to that point. I don't mean to misappropriate. God's will in your life, but you've got to, at some point, become comfortable in your own skin. You actually have to say, this is who I am. Man, I'm messed up. Oh, I'm the only one? <laughs> this is who I am. That's who you are. God didn't make any mistakes. I'm arrogant. You're arrogant. We fail. We succeed. We fall down seven times, we get up seven times if we're living like Romans 1.17 says, the righteous man shall live by faith. We get up seven times. That means just get up. So you fail. Big deal. Don't come here expecting me to say, oh, sweetness, you'll never fail again. Just follow this little doctrine right here. Because you're not going to get it. I'm going to tell you. You're an idiot if you think you don't fail. That means you're missing the whole point. You're an arrogant person. How great is your darkness when you think you're in the light? We all fail every day miserably. So says, guess what? The Word of God. 
But as Paul said, recollecting Jesus' own words, my grace is sufficient for you. And God is glorified if we live that life. Ephesians 4.11, so what's my job? He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. For what? The equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried out carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we ought to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in what? Love. This is why we gather on a Sunday morning like this. This is why this pulpit has been ordained. This is why this spiritual gift has been given to you personally. Personally. So that you're built up, that we're built up in the unity of faith. Built up in love. It takes a lot more love to teach the honest truth in the Bible than it does to fill seats. Oh, I could trust me. 20 years in industry, always around marketing and sales somehow. I could fill seats tomorrow, easily. I know all the little anecdotes. Heck, I get them in emails half the time. Would you like to increase the number of people that attend your church? Do this thing, do this thing. We have a proven method. Yeah, I know, I can see it down the street with the idiots. Turning a church into a, a rock studio. Telling people, ah, just believe this coin. Come down the aisle. You're good. You're safe. Woo, yeah, booyah. I know it sells, but we're not supposed to be salesmen. This is true. I don't have to sell you this. I just show you the scripture, and you get to see this on your own. Freedom is the result of love. Stated more visually, a person locked up in a prison cell by themselves can only serve themselves. Selfish love dominates. However, a man set free from prison is free to serve others. Selfless love dominates. That I know. Paul taught this many years ago. Galatians 5.1 For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Since we're pursuing God's perspective, how about God's perspective on man? God created each of us with a capacity to love and an innate desire to be loved. It's like the numero uno thing. He created us with a capacity to love and an innate desire to be loved. For either of these things to be satisfied at any level, we must engage with others, beginning with the one who created us. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. 
You can't love with your brand of love if you're trying to be somebody else, if you're not being yourself. Just be yourself. It's very disconcerting, I believe, when someone comes up to you and even with that sense of earnestness is trying to show you a love, but it's not theirs and you know it. And you say, that's not you. I know you're trying to, quote, do these good things. I know you're trying to show the love of Christ, but please do it as you. Don't show up with the garb. Don't show up with the Halloween costume. Nobody, nobody that actually gets it is impressed. Do you know what I mean? It's just a distraction. Show up as you. Don't show up naked. Ha <laughs> ha, that was a good one. Just show up. Naked as you are, just not naked. Do you get what he's saying to you? Just show up as you. You're beautiful. You're perfect. I'm looking at all of you. Even Jim Mello is beautiful to me. He's probably going to say, I'll get you in the back later, man, because I'm a Marine. Don't call me beautiful. Hoorah. But he is to me. Anthony is too. Oh, here we go. I'm dead man. Should have picked on Sean. Sean already knows it. You're all magnificent from my perspective. And from and I, what am I? I'm just another human being. Imagine what God thinks of you, and he created you. And he sees Christ in you. Satan hates this point. Hates it. It's an indictment on his own character, that's why. Consider now as we close how many devices are embedded, even institutionalized, into our lives. Think about how many devices are embedded, even institutionalized, into our lives. And that's why I like the term institutionalized arrogance, because it's like having Satan's mind cemented all around us, and it's heavy and it's suffocating at times. And institutionalized arrogance makes us claustrophobic, too. Do you ever feel like that? I go out in the world and I just feel like I'm being, like I'm claustrophobic. I'm like, God, it's everywhere. It's evil. Everywhere. And it's institutionalized. I, don't even, I can't even watch television anymore. I turn on the television, I'm like, ooh. Instantaneous. Ah. Oh. News, forget it. Newspapers, sometimes even worse, depending on the one. These are all things we might associate with a prison cell. Yeah. With that said, we are back, my friends. Here we are. We've already covered salvation perspectives, positional, experiential, ultimate. The idea, again, is to get God's viewpoint on all of this. We have now been on sanctification perspectives for a very long time, positionally, experientially, ultimately. We've been on that second bullet, of course, what we might call out theologically as imparted righteousness or a daily activity. But nonetheless, it's the same. He's just saying, listen, I'm going to save you and I'm going to sanctify you. That's what I see. And whatever that means in your individual life, embrace it. Because it's going to happen. Now, there's one final point. 
And uh, yeah, we've got time. Yeah. How are you guys making out? Is it warm? Just remember, it's about five degrees hotter up here. I've got sweat dripping down my back. TMI, too bad. Right? Is everybody all right? Did everybody have too much coffee? Get a run out? Just saying. Chris, you good? All right, you only took this much of the water, so you're good. I'm more worried about, like, Brenda. That's a tall cup of joe. Oh, that's not Brenda. That's Rebecca. See, I can't even see that far. Brenda's got one, though, too. Anybody else I can pick on? Everybody's like this. Nope. That's not a glutton bucket. That's not a big gulp. You have to concentrate. I know it's late in the lesson, but it is a final point that I, don't, I didn't want to give during the week. I wanted to give it to this group. So I want to share with you something that, for some of you, might be mind-blowing, maybe not. I don't know. Depends on where you are spiritually. Maybe you don't even get it yet, which is fine. I'm not condescending. It's something that I've known for some time, but it's one of those areas of spiritual growth that truly makes or takes some time to fully embrace. So rather than assume I can somehow impart such a thing to your soul, allow me to submit some scripture to you along the way, and with minimal commentary, I'll leave our lesson there. So concentrate, concentrate. One disclaimer, before you run off thinking I'm teaching something in error, like a believer can lose their salvation once saved, I'm not teaching that. I won't, because it's not true. To the contrary. What I'm about to teach you is possibly a change in perspective, or at least an enhancement of the one you have, regarding your eternal security. So I'll just say this, and you can react, and then when you're done reacting, you can listen to the rest of the lesson. Okay? There's always the potentiality of losing faith. There's always the potentiality of losing faith. In other words, you have faith, but right here, it's not there. And there's always the potential that's there. Again, before you go running off accusing me of being a blasphemer, let me finish the thought. First, very much akin to this is the fact that Jesus was tempted. Think about it. Jesus had perfect faith, right? But yet he was tempted. So unless it was a real temptation, it must have been fake. But it wasn't fake. It was real. That means the potentiality of him falling into sin was actually there. You get it? Jesus was tempted. In other words, God knew from eternity past that Jesus would never fail as the blameless and spotless lamb, but yet Scripture says he really was tempted. In other words, like my original statement about the potentiality of losing faith, the potentiality of sinning was there too. Otherwise, what was the point? Either he was tempted, really, or he wasn't. Either he can sympathize as a result with us, or he can't. So that disturbs people. Like, wait a minute. Bo, bo, no, no. Yes. The potentiality was there. That's what makes it real. The potentiality of you losing faith is there. That's what makes it real. But here's the thing. It glorifies God when you see the truth of the matter. It makes it personal. It's, at the end of this, hopefully you see that he's not letting you go. That's different than a brick wall being put up, isn't it? It's almost like you're leaning over and he just got you by the shirt and he says, I'm never letting you go. 
to that pit. I won't. That's a different visual because he has to hold you every day, doesn't he? There's a real potential energy for you to fall into the pit. But he says, I've not lost one. <laughs> That's a change of perspective for some people, especially the um, overeducated people. Let's put it that way. Jesus was tempted. I want you to keep that in mind. Like my original statement about the potentiality of losing faith, the potentiality of sinning was there too. Otherwise, what's the point? Even though the potentiality exists in both cases, God's grace, God's grace ensures the potential never actually comes to fruition. You might be saying, this guy's splitting hairs unnecessarily, but I'm not. This is beautiful. This is as good as it gets, my friends. You want to talk about sanctification? This is as good as it gets. He's not letting you go. Even though there's the pit. What I'm saying in a nutshell is up here on the board. God ensures our faith never fails. This is a real, ever-present reality and activity. He ensures that His children never lose faith. He not only saves us daily, but He actively ensures our faith never fails through a variety of ways. He actively ensures our faith never fails through a variety of ways. Go to John 18, 9. Jesus Himself said this. John 18, 9. I want you to see this, my friends. This is... Magnificent. This is as good as it gets. All this talk about sanctification. This is very personal. This is how much He loves you. This is, if I was to do His whole theological treatise on eternal security, this would be in it. There's all these criteria of why we can actually stake our claim on eternal security. Why? A lot of people don't know why. They say, well, I got faith, so that's the end of it. You know, it's like, you know, I went to Walmart and bought a shoe. And now that I have the shoe, I never lose it. Oh, what? There's a daily activity that you need to understand. And when you understand it, you say, are you serious? You mean every day he's saving me? Every day he's keeping me from losing my faith? Faith that saves? Yes. Yes. What does it say? To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Up here on the board. Jesus Christ is active in our eternal security. Our faith never fails because he ensures it. And you notice I used an I there. It's like an insurance policy. He ensures it. John 18.9 reveals that he has a personal role in it. This is one of the most magnificent truths for all believers, to know that by the integrity and merits of Jesus Christ, we remain saved. He's not letting us go. God is behind all of this, my friends, for it is not like spiritual death doesn't still exist, because it certainly does. And it's not like people haven't walked away from the faith, because we know apostates do it all the time. However, if you are truly one of God's children, Jesus Christ says He won't let you go. He won't let you go. 
and the Spirit has also sealed you. Go to 2 Corinthians 1.21. 2 Corinthians 1.21. The Spirit has also sealed you. Make it personal, folks. 2 Corinthians 1.21. This is where your sense of awe is going to come from. Your sense of gratitude is going to come from. If you just hedge the bet, where's your gratitude? You think it was a hedging a bet. Made my money, got my little gold coin. When it's time, when I die, I'm going to insert it in the gates of pearly, the pearly gates of heaven, and I'm through. I got my token. No. When you understand that he's saving you, he's holding you personally. Things change. 2 Corinthians 1.21 Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Ain't that awesome? Again, what I want you to see is the present daily activity of God. Up here on the board, again, Jesus Christ is active in our eternal security. Our faith never fails because He ensures it. It's not that the potentiality is not there, because it is. But He makes sure that you don't lose it. That activity, God's work on your behalf in the presence of sin and spiritual death, ensures us of our faith. Go to 1 Corinthians 10.13. 1 Corinthians 10.13. I hope you're seeing this, folks. It doesn't get any better than this when it comes to your sanctification. In other words, you didn't just receive some little gold coin, some little token that you're going to you know, throw over your shoulder when you make it to heaven, so to speak. I got mine. No. You're being held. Your faith is insured by God. But not because the potentiality doesn't exist anymore. Interesting. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Whose activity do you see here? And what about the hypothetical question? Well, what if God did allow us to be tempted beyond the boundaries of our own faith? What if that were true? In other words, why is that scripture even there? It's because the potentiality exists. But he won't do it. Do you understand? He won't allow it. He won't allow you to lose the faith that He gave you that saves you. Hence, you have eternal security. Thank God we never have to go through that. Go to 2 Timothy 2.13. Thank God. Second Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Thank God for his faithfulness. Thank God that he's got us by the, the collar, so to speak. Thank God that he ensures our saving faith even. And lastly, one must reconcile the truth about the matter then. 
And that is, if God ensures us that our faith never fails, then what must we conclude if it does? If God himself ensures us that our faith never fails, then what must we conclude if it does? We never had it. We never had it. That's the apostate, my friends. We never had it. And it goes not just for salvation, but all along. Wherever faith is the evidence of doing God's will, whatever faith is in view for producing some good fruit in a person, if that faith fails, then we never had it. That's what we can conclude. And for some, the faith in question is that which saves them from the lake of fire. And if that's the case, then God's activities regarding never letting go of one of his own, well, they simply don't apply. If a person can walk away from the faith, then God's activities regarding never letting one of his own go, they don't apply. But didn't we prophesy in your name? I never knew you. If you were mine, I'd never let you go. But see, you were never mine. So you went away. That's the beauty of faith, my friends. Some people may have, think they got it even. Not just at salvation, but some part of their life even but they really don't. They're just playing a game. And then when the faith fails, and it's real, God says, you didn't have it. You, knew, you saw scripture and you wanted it, but you never had it because I never gave it to you because you were never humble enough to receive it. You just wanted to hedge bets. You just wanted to sift through my holy scriptures and look for things that give you promises about your life. Oh, it says right here, you'll bless me if I do this, that, and the other. Yeah, but God sees the heart. Yeah, but it says right here. Yeah, monkey can read that. Well, monkey can't read that, but, you know, anybody can read that. Hope you see what he's saying, my friends. Last slide, then I'll give you a video. God ensures our faith never fails. If a person is tested and they walk away from the faith, it means that Jesus never had them, for he has never lost one of his own sheep. That's what Scripture says. He says, I'm never letting go one of my own. Amen? So what if someone's able to walk away? They were never his. Thank God for, assumably, all of you. That doesn't apply to you. But maybe in your life there are people that need to understand that. I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. And maybe it's just becoming really very real to you just now. But that's what Scripture says. Uh, you want to play the video? Really?
very real to you just now. But that's what scripture says. Ah, right, you want to play the video? in prayer. Father, thank you again for this morning's message. 
for such a wonderful time to fellowship together in the unity of the faith and for making days like this one obvious blessings from you. Father, we pray for those not with us this morning, though, as you know, they ought to be. We pray that they wake up before it's too late and that they snap out of it, Father. We pray that they hear the gospel for what it is, truth that sets us free. Father, show us how to evangelize. Tell us when to speak. And may we be ever humble ourselves so that we hear and do all that is pleasing to you. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Thank you.